They've made me feel like a prisoner They've made me feel set free They've made me feel like a criminal Made me feel like a king They've lifted my heart To places I've never been And they've dragged me down Back to where I began Words can build you up Words can break you down Start a fire in your heart Or put it out Let my words be life Let my words be truth I don't want to say a word Unless it puts the world back to you You can feel the heartache Speak over the fear is the only thing we need to hear. Words can build us up, words can break us down, start a That song gets in your head. Wonder how many words we speak in a lifetime. Well, there was a British guy back in 1984 that did some research, and he came up with this number. I don't know how he came up with the number. He doesn't say. 860,341,500 words. He even wrote a book that he had that as a subtitle, How to Have Fun with 860,341,500 Words. Now, I did some research on my own, and I found numbers, you know, half that, more than that. I don't know. That, that, that's an awful lot of words. There's even debate over whether women talk more than men, and interestingly, they found out that it's really not all that much different, which is, well, whatever. So, uh, frankly, I, I, 
I don't know how you would track it down. You know, you got hermits, and you've got people that just talk all the time. You've got talk show hosts, host, introverts, extroverts. I, I don't know how you how you total it up. But let's go with this Brit suggestion, and we'll use that kind of as our figure. 860,341,500 words. That is 14 and a half times the 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary. That's a lot of words. Uh, I looked up to figure out what the length of a best-selling novel is today. It's about 80,000 words. So that means in a lifetime, you've said enough words to fill 10,754 novels. Now, I didn't say it would be an interesting 10,754 novels or that the dictionary that you would compose would be all, all that interesting. But you say a lot of words. No matter how you do the math, we, we just say an awful lot of words, which makes... What James has to say for us this morning, all the more significant. We do talk a lot. Robert Frost, the poet, one time said, Half the world is composed of people who have something to say and can't, and the other half who have something to say and keep on saying it. Have They have nothing to say and they keep on saying it. Uh, we have a few of those not say anything but keep on saying it people here but don't look at anybody don't elbow anybody that's next to you don't cover up their mouths but but we like to talk don't we we just we say lots of words and some of us who need to say more words don't say them you might be surprised or maybe not that in the book of proverbs things that have to do with words are mentioned an awful lot about 150 times either lips or mouths or tongues or words in either flattering or unflattering ways are, are, are noticed. In fact, I thought a few samples, samples might help us out, and I like the pithy kind of folksy way that the message captures them. Chapter 10 of verse Proverbs is a real big thing on words. If you want to just capture a lot of them, go to chapter 10, but let me read you a few verses out of them. Here's one, verse 13. You'll find wisdom on the lips of a person of insight, but the short-sighted? Needs a slap in the face. <laughs> Verse 14. The wise accumulated knowledge, the wise accumulate knowledge, a true treasure. Know-it-alls talk too much, a sheer waste. Verse 19. The more talk, the less truth. The wise measure their words. Verse 20. The speech of a good person is worth waiting for. The blabber of the wicked is worthless. Verse 21. The talk of a good person is rich fare for many, but chatterboxes die of an empty heart. Verse 31. A good person's mouth is a clear fountain of wisdom. A foul mouth is a stagnant swamp. You've known a few good swamps in your time, haven't you? Or uh, here's, here's some more chapters. Uh, chapter 12, verse 8. A person who talks sense is honored. Airheads are held in contempt. Verse 18, rash language cuts and maims, but there is healing in the words of the wise. Chapter 13, verse 3, careful words make for a careful life. Careless talk, talk may ruin everything. Or this one kind of sums it all up, chapter 18, verse 21. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Well, I could go on, but... You get the sense that there's an awful lot of talk about words in, in here. And so we've already said that James is rooted uh, in a lot of his thought processes in the Old Testament wisdom literature because he talks about things that you find in this Old Testament literature about how to, how to live a practical life. 
or we've been talking about this, this blue jeans theology that we're, that we're trying to explore here. Um, it, it doesn't surprise you then probably that he has something to say about words, but what might surprise you is that the first thing that he says about words is not to speak them. Now, if you went to a speech class and the professor got up and he said, okay, uh, first thing we're going to learn today is not to speak. <laughs> we're going to learn to do something else. I actually had a class like that in college where the professor got up and he said, the first thing we're going to learn to do is not to speak. But what James says in verse one, chapter 1, verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. He says, Every, this is the first thing. Everyone should be quick to what? Listen. Then he finally gets on to the slow to speaking part. I want to talk to you first of all about being quick to listen. That's just contrary to our natures, isn't it? Uh, we all like to talk. Some of us like to talk more than others. We are more likely to be quick to speak and slow to listen. We flip what he just said on its head. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about all of these contrasting moments in life. It talks about things like a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to keep, a time to take away. And then it talks about a time to be silent and a time to speak. It's like the writer is saying there are these pendulum experiences that we have, this and then that, and this and then that. And you have times to be quiet and times to speak. And it just kind of swings back and forth. Well, some of our lives swing over to the speak spot and they stick, right? Now, don't again look at anybody that you know in this place very well. What is the problem? Why, why is it? Because it's just uh, human nature, he says. Ecclesiastes and James both begin with silence. Be quick to listen, James says. J. Vernon McGee one time said it takes a baby two years to learn how to talk and then 50 years to learn how to keep quiet. We're still working on it. You know, we're so excited when they learn how to talk. And then we just, somebody said, man, if you want to know how many words, uh, talk to my kids and my, my teenagers or whatever. You know, we say a lot of words in our lifetime. Now, I'm going to venture into some dangerous territory and try to explore why it is that we are not quick to listen. And I, it may apply to you. I know it applies to me. So if no, the only person who hears this sermon is me, hopefully it changes, changes my life. The reason that we speak the reason that we are quick to speak, I think, a lot of times is because we think we have something to say. And sometimes we think we have something more important to say than those other people that are around us. In fact, when we're in conversations with people, sometimes we're just looking for you to take a breath so that we can start talking, right? You ever had a, you ever had a conversation with somebody like that? I mean, you sort of get the feeling that they want to talk to you, but they don't really want to talk to you. They want to talk to you. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They, they want to talk to you. Uh, sometimes if you don't stop and take a breath, they just talk over you. Or they even answer questions that you haven't even asked yet. I mean, they, they know what you're thinking, so they just kind of put that in their head. We say what needs to be said sometimes because we feel like we know what needs to be said. So what comes to our mind, quickly we rush in to speak. Now, quite honest, when you think about that, I suppose it uh, betrays a bit of arrogance on our part that we, we have the better word. We know what to say. We know what to do. And so we just kind of rush in with that. We quickly offer these answers to questions, like I said, that sometimes aren't even asked, assumptions about situations that we think we don't understand. We say what we have to say. We close the book. We settle the conversation. 
And there may, may be no relationship in which that is any more challenging when it doesn't work right than in a marriage. Um, if, if we are preoccupied with ourselves and we never listen to the partner, we only have half of a conversation. Now, guys have a problem with this. It may not be that we talk more words, but we think our words are more important, right? You know, it's like, I'm, I'm, my words are few, but my words are, are the right words. That really can mess up a relationship. And it's not just in a marriage. It happens in a church, or it happens in a, in a community, or it happens in a political system, or whatever. It's why James includes this in his practical advice about life. A few weeks back, I mentioned a, a German theologian. He may not be on your reading list, but he's really written some cool stuff. He, he lived back during the Second World War. He was a pastor during that time. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote this book called Life Together, and there's a chapter in it that is titled, just a section that's titled The Ministry of Listening. And it's so good. I, let me just share a few lines from it. He says, the first service, the first thing that we owe to others in the community involves listening to them. And here's, here's why, he says, just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of our love for other Christians is learning to listen to them. God's love for us, he says, is shown by the fact that God not only gives us God's word, but he also lends us God's ear. So often Christians, especially preachers, he said, now why did he have to put that in there, think that their only service is only to offer something when they're together with the people. Sometimes we get the feeling that all we do is say something. Now this is kind of ironic. I'm talking to you about how I need to listen to you, and I'm the only one talking in the room, so that may not be too great. But, but he says, the people that are in leadership roles sometimes forget that listening can be the greater service than speaking. Many people seek a sympathetic hear, ear, he says, and do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking even when they should be listening. See, if somebody's desperate to be heard, but we're running our mouths. He says, those who cannot listen long and patiently will always be talking past others and finally no longer will even notice it. Those who think their time is too precious to spend listening will never really have time for God or others, but only themselves and for their own words and plans. He says, there's a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It's impatient, inattentive listening that is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. Then he, then he winds it up this way. He says, Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener and whose work they should share. We should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. Boy, that last line's that's powerful. We should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. I did a clinical pastoral program called uh, CPE back when I was doing my doctoral work. I was in a, I was located in a medical center up in Indiana, big hospital there. And uh, part of the process is that you interacted with patients and you were providing with chap uh, chaplaincy work as, as, a, as a chaplain in the hospital. And with your peers, there were about eight or ten of us, and I had a supervisor who was a really uh, perceptive guy who would, who would tell you, very frankly, what needed to be said. And we did, we, 
we logged our conversations. They were called verbatims. You didn't actually tape them, but what you did is you sat down after they were over with and you wrote down word for word exactly how they, these changes happened. And you had to submit them to your, to your uh, supervisor and then your peers would sometimes uh, pick them apart through there. And one of the things that, that I get reminded of very quickly, because I'm a person of words, he said, you, you need to talk less. You, you need to listen more. You need to wait. And I, I was younger then, and I don't know that I've gotten a whole lot better. I hope, I've, I hope I'm better than, than what I was. But what I discovered is that when I disciplined myself to listen more, I heard some amazing stuff. You've had conversations with people, haven't you, where you, you sort of get the sense that they're really not interested in what you have to say. I mean, they, they really they don't care. But when somebody sits down with you, and you, you could do it. It's even the difference when you go visit somebody in the room. You know, uh, if I go visit somebody in the hospital, a lot of times I'll pull up a chair and sit down because it, it means, hey, I, I, I want to I I be here with you for a, little, for a little bit. Now, I mean, it stay real long, particularly if you're not feeling well or, or if you're in pain or whatever like that. But I want you to know I'm here to listen. And you know what I found out? That when I waited, even in painful silence. Isn't that the hard time when you're having a conversation with somebody is for everybody to be still and, and neither of you to talk? But I found out that when I waited, painfully waited, that sometimes people would say things like, you know, I've never really ever told anybody this in all my life, but, and then they would say something that they desperately really needed to say. And they would never have said it if I hadn't listened. I have found that in conversations with people as far as working in the church or talking to people. I've had conversations with you. I had a conversation after church today with a beautiful guy here. He told me about his life. It was beautiful as I listened to what he had to say about himself and his life. But it means that we've got to be, that we've got to be quick to listen. That's, that's where speaking starts is in not speaking. We need to be listeners. Bite our tongues if we have to. Um, the conversation needs to happen, but it needs to happen slowly. What we give to each other is the sweet gift of a patient, God-inspired, love-prompted, genuinely desired attitude of wanting to hear, to know, and to understand. Okay, so you understand the first thing is that you need to be quick to listen. Now, he does talk about speaking, but, but interesting. It, then he doesn't say be quick to speak. He says be slow to speak. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Now, we've actually addressed some of the issues why that listening part and, and being slow to speak is good. But... Um, but there's more to it, and, and you kind of get into it when you start digging into this. Have you ever said something, and immediately after you said it, you realized, oh, I should not have said that? Haven't we all? It was just the first thing that came out of our mouth. The first word that came to our head was suddenly on our lips, and it had a profound impact, and we thought, oh, that's not what I should have done. Two, three years ago, I came across, you know, every once in a while, pop-up notices about something, and on Gmail, it told me that there was this new application where you could actually unsend an email. You ever heard of that? I had somebody send me an email one time asking to retract the email they'd sent. I thought, well, I've already got the email. You know, how, how am I supposed to retract it? I've already read it, and it didn't really 
make me feel real good, but he wanted it back. So it's like, okay. But this one, literally, you can pull it back. Now, what it does is it delays the sending your email, and you tell it how many seconds you can do. So if you accidentally hit it, or if you hit it and you think, well, that was not a good idea, you can actually pull it back. So you're not really unsending it. You're just, I guess, stopping the sending of it. To be honest, I discovered early in the life of email that when I write something in an email, particularly if it's a public thing, I mean, if I write you an email, if I wrote a student an email, if I wrote a colleague an email, I assumed that that email could get read, right? They tell you that when you work. I mean, if you write something and it's out there, it's out there. So I try to be careful about what I say, although there are times when I've, when I've probably not done that very well. In fact, I, I came across some advice. I was teaching some of our students about uh, use of social media and email and stuff like that and how it can sometimes create conflict. And I came across this interesting advice by somebody who said, when you're writing an email to somebody and it's got stuff in there that you're really not sure how that's going to be taken, don't put the address of the email person in the email when you start reading it, when you start writing it. And part of that, have you ever accidentally sent an email too soon? Boom. You know, that could be a problem, too. So the suggestion was don't put the, the recipient of the email in the, this box up there and write your whole thing, and then you can think about it, and then you can decide where you want to do it. You know what I've done sometimes? Not necessarily doing that. I have written an awful lot of what I thought were pretty good emails, and then I realized this was not something that I should send. You ever done that? And either I put it in an archive and think maybe, maybe later on, or I have rewritten email, but sometimes I just hit delete. Because I think to myself, this is really, this is really probably not going to be a very good idea. Because we've all had those times where we have said things. We have been quick to say things. And then we find out, boy, I totally misunderstood that. I had all the facts wrong. I really should have said this, or I, I should have said that. And then you send something to somebody, and suddenly it escalates, and you realize, boy, I didn't help this thing. I made it worse. I think that's what James has in mind. Because he's talking, not emails, he didn't have that back then, but he's, think, he's talking about don't do things that create problems that are the result of unfiltered negative passion. Because he not only says that we are to be slow to speak, but if you notice, he's got two slows in there. A second slow is also be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Uh, a little boy was told by his mother that he should count to 10 before he took any kind of action, particularly when he was feeling strong about something. So she was a little surprised when she looked out in the backyard and her boy was sitting on this neighbor kid named Johnny, sitting on him. And she went out there and she said, don't you remember that you're supposed to count to 10 before you do anything? And he says, why, why are you doing this? He says, I'm sitting on him because I want to make sure when I get to the end of 10 that he's still there. <laughs> Pop him one. You know, he was just trying to build up a head of steam. He was just trying to think of creative ways to let, to let Johnny have it. The point of it is to go slow so that we have an opportunity to check our anger. Elizabeth Elliot one time wrote, Never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. That's good advice. Don't say is a lot of times better wisdom than to just say whatever you're thinking. It's true you're much less likely to be successful in the mouth-shut department if you only quickly say what your passion motivates you to say. 
How many arguments could you have avoided if you just had held your tongue, if you had waited, if you had been slow to speak? And there may be no area of our emotion where that's any more dangerous than in social media. Man, it amazes me what people can say online. You know, things that, things that I, I, I would think you would not say to somebody else, it's almost like we feel like we've got this anonymity. Now, our name and our picture is right there, you know, so they see. Sometimes I'll see friends that post things. I think, I cannot believe you said that. I mean, we just, we have this instant capacity to be able to, to get out there, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may be, and we, we say things that are so polarizing and just create a frenzy. We weaponize our words and throw them out there into the cyberspace so that they can just kind of make war with each other. Sometimes we even say things that aren't true. Maybe we don't know they're not true, but we don't stop to ask whether they're true. They just convey deep feelings. Gossip, innuendo, half-truth, criticism, character assassination, just ugly stuff that we, that we put out there. And if 140 characters won't work, then we'll go to the second post and the second tweet or we'll put a picture up or whatever it may be. I'm struck by how the contemporary English version captures verse 20 of what James has to say. It says, if you are angry, you cannot do any of the good things that God wants. Or the message captures verses 19 and 20 in this way. Lead with your ears. Follow, with, follow up with your tongue. And let anger straggle along in the rear. God's righteousness does not grow from human anger. If you're mad, sometimes the best thing to do is to shut your mouth. Because you're going to say something from the passion that's welling up within you that may or may not be good. Now, there are times when it's okay to righteous anger. God gets angry. I think there are times it's not that anger is a bad thing, but we need to be careful about how we use it. Verse 29 <coughs> in, in this first chapter says from James, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. If you don't watch what you say, you deny who you are. I, I love the app on a computer, the spell checker. You use a spell checker? You don't? Yeah. In fact, there, there's a thing called Grammarly, which a lot of students should use. I mean, it, it actually cleans up your stuff. It says, you know, you, need, you could say this in a better way, or you could, they have similar, similar versions of that. I wish they had an app that was a tongue checker. <laughs> if, if right when you're getting ready to say something, you could install it in your head or in your mouth or in your lips or in your heart or wherever it may be and say, oh, 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 don't say that. But there, there really is something like that. David wrote in one of his psalms, Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Muzzle me, is basically what he's saying. Keep watch over the door of my lips. How many of us have said worthless or angry things and wish that we could recall, recall them? Quick to listen, slow to speak, lest anger finds its place. But that's not the last stop. He's got, he's got one other place that he takes us that he finishes out <coughs> over in chapter 3, uh, this section that I've pulled out here to talk about, talk about his words. And that is that he tells, and this is maybe, this could be one of the most dangerous parts of it. He says, you need to realize that our words tend to get amplified. They have powerful consequences. In fact, I'd put it this way. Words have disproportionate consequences. They are little things 
that have huge impact. And James starts out chapter 3 by saying, in no area is that any more true than with people that are teachers. In fact, he says, not many of you should be teachers, verse 1, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Our words matter. You know, I, I, I take it seriously that what I'm saying here to you today, because you're listening, puts me at greater risk. Because if I say the wrong thing, I not only mislead me, but I have the potential to mislead you. Now think back in your life to those teachers that had, that had an impression on you, who spoke good into your life. My, my youngest son, he's, he's all grown up now, but when he was really little in grade school, he came home from school one day, elementary school, toward the end of the year, and there was just something busting in him to tell. You ever, you ever had that? You know, your kid comes home from, from school, and it's like, they just, they just got to tell you something and got to get it out. His art teacher... I found out, had admired something that he had drawn, and she told him that she liked it so much, she wanted to put it up in a faculty lounge so that everybody else could see it. And when he reported that, these are his words, as I remember it. I am great at art. My teacher told me so. Now, he didn't end up in his life aspiring to be a painter. He wanted to be an actor, and he went on to college, and he learned a, earned a fine arts degree. He lives in New York City. He, wants, he, he loves to act. Now he's, he's not done it on Broadway. He did it just kind of right off Broadway, and he had a producer and a director of it who was a, who was a big name, uh, film uh, award-winning person. And I don't know, someday I'd love to see him, and I could see him doing something on Broadway. But you know, I wonder sometimes whether in his life, and he had other people who spoke to him, he had a great drama teacher in high school, but I, I wonder whether that art teacher did something that tripped a switch in him that said, hey, you, you're great at art. What kind of words did you hear from people that you valued that spoke good into your life? I had a teacher in high school who taught humanities. I loved her class. She was single and beautiful, so maybe that had something to do with it. I, I don't know, but... but but what I loved as much as she just loved, she loved humanity, she loved art. We studied everything back from the beginning of civilization on up with music and art and theater and all those kinds of things. I remember in her class, my project was I, I wrote a song and, and the notation of it and taped it on one of those old real, real recorders and played it for, you know, class. That was, that was my project. It was one semester, one class, just a few words but it inspired something in me that still is there. I mean, I love art. I, I love the humanities. I love, I love to travel. When I was a kid, my dad, uh, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and when services were over, he would have me come out to the back door with him, and I would sit there, and he'd shake people's hands, and I would shake people's hands, you know, the little, little guy. And he, he would refer to me, and the people would refer to me as like, I was like the little preacher. That spoke into my life. That's what I grew up to be. Now, there were other things that I thought about being, but that was, that was what I wanted to be. And I think a lot of it had to do was that people that I valued looked at me and said, I see this in you. Now, James is not so much talking about how good our words can be from those that mentor us or parent us or teach us, but I think, I think we all need to realize that speaking good words into people's lives can be can be great, but also to realize that it has the potential to diminish us. Most of us 
can tell stories. I can tell you a whole bunch of stories of people that have said things in my life that have diminished me, that have either been critical, some of them like teachers or, or whatever, that have the capacity to say things that hurt us rather than, than help us. James says that those people that have roles of responsibility to speak into people's lives, like teachers, are under greater scrutiny when it comes to God's judgment. So he says, you need to be careful about what you say. There were those in James' days who aspired to be teachers. They liked to be people of influence, to say all the words. And Jesus, a lot of times, got into conflict with these. They were, they were the scribes, the teachers that everybody elevated. They were the rabbis. They were the people that were looked to as the, as the teachers of the time. But they were unprincipled, a lot of them. And they were arrogant, and they were proud. And on one occasion, over in Matthew 13, 36 and 37, he says, let me tell you something. He's talking to these teachers. Every one of these careless words is going to come back to haunt you. There will be a time of reckoning. Words are powerful. Take them seriously. Words can be your salvation. Words can also be your damnation. Whoa. Be careful what you say. And he backs it up by, by admitting the fact that all of us mess up. He says it this way in chapter one, uh, 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 the 3, verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. He's saying, you know, um, there, there are a lot of us that, um, that handle ourselves well, but there are a lot of us that just struggle, and the ones that control their tongue control their, control their body. I think he was kind of saying this with a bit of sarcasm because he's already said, you know, most of us fall. We stumble. We, we have trouble. Words have disproportionate consequences when we speak them. And we should never take that role lightly. I don't think it's so much that the tongue keeps control of the life, it is, is the heart, the tongue is the tattletale of the heart. Jesus one time said, Matthew records it in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. All this stuff that pollutes life is something that started deep inside you. So good heart, good words. Bad heart, bad words. Be careful that you don't give a place to vent your heart through your lips that hurts. Words matter far out of proportion. And in that chapter 3, he illustrates this, and this is probably the most familiar part of this passage, so I'm going to talk less about it because you've probably heard all kinds of sermons on it. It's, it's really vivid, this string of metaphors. In verse 3, he says, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. A tongue also is a fire, he says, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Woo. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed by mankind, he says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Whoa. Well, that's a, that's a string of stuff that makes you 
wonder where you should ever open your mouth again. This little thing, few words, disproportionate influence, like the five-inch bit in the horse's mouth that takes that thousand-pound horse and allows him to do whatever the rider wants him to do, or that, that little bitty rudder on that great big ship that allows a pilot to be able to steer it through any kind of storm. And the tongue is poison, just like the fires of hell. I spoke to you a few minutes ago about the need to say good words, but, and I want to ask you gently about this because I don't want to dredge up something that is going to hurt, but ha haven't you had people speak words to your life? And I, I, know that, I know you have that were anything but good, and they just come up all the time in your head. They come up and make you doubt yourself. They come up and make, maybe it's a boss that said, you know, you, you were a worthless employee or a, a spouse who said something hateful to you. And it's like it's stuck in there and it haunts you and, and you can't be what you want to be because somebody spoke just one or two words into your life that shouldn't have been said and you cannot get them out because you just hear them again and again. And especially if they were spoken to you in the tender moments of your youth, or in the intimacy of a relationship with somebody that you thought cared about you, and suddenly they say this hateful thing into your life. And it's like that wound just gets picked open again and again and again and again. Or maybe you're the one that said those things to somebody, and you're thinking, I said this to my kid, or I said this to my coworker, or I said this to my spouse, and I wish to goodness that there was some way to take it back because it had so much power beyond what it seemed like it should. And James is not insensitive to that because he says, okay, we've got these things. We've got, we've got rudders that can control ships and we have bits that can control horses and we have all these kinds of things. But he said, we tame all these animals, but we can't tame our tongues. He says, it's like a spark that lights a forest on fire, and before all is done, all hell has broken loose. We watched the wildfires in Australia right after we saw fires like this in California. It just seemed like a normal fire at first, and uh, it got bad real quick. In just a matter of 20 minutes, what looked like a calm sky was orange. Our town is on fire. That's ash coming down, not rain. It was just call after call. Oh, I can see the plane. It's in my yard. It's getting big by the second. You have to get out. No one can come to help you. I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. The first corner we hit, there was fire, and we were stuck in traffic. Come on! We had children on that bus. We are surrounded. There was nowhere else to go. Never thought I'd see embers and fireballs coming out of the sky. Mass destruction. Extremely rapid fire spread. Resistant to control. I don't think we're going to get out. Heavenly Father, please help us. Boom. We're waiting five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, forty minutes. <laughs> And then it went completely black. I thought it was interesting. That fire was in a place called Paradise. And James talks about the fire being rooted in hell. In fact, uh, he uses the word 
for a valley that was outside the walls south of Jerusalem called Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. It, it was a place where in the Old Testament there were, it was reported that children were sacrificed in pagan worship practices. In Jesus' day it was a dump where they just piled all the garbage in the refuse and it was almost always on fire and the smoke and the stench of it were there and that's, that's what Jesus used to describe hell and that's what what James is trying to say is our words have this potential to be this poisonous, fiery, destructive thing that can happen to so, so many people. In verse 9, he wraps it up. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapefruit, grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. He describes this series of natural inconsistencies. He says, these things do not happen in life. They should not happen in your mouth. They... they you cannot claim to be a person of faith and speak words that are rooted in hell. Be what you are. Talk motivated by who, who God is. You know, it's interesting. This text right here just stops. You ever, you, ever, you ever read a book and you wonder if they left off the last few pages? Or somebody, or, you know, there's a chord that needs to be resolved and it just never gets resolved, just kind of hangs there. A sentence where you never get the end of the sentence, it just stops. He goes on to something else. He, he, he leaves us here at this thing saying, you know, you shouldn't have these, shouldn't have these inconsistencies in your life, and then he stops. And I, and I wonder whether, whether that was on purpose or he just got distracted and he started, I don't know, but it makes me wonder, how am I going to finish this? How am I going to write the ending? What am I going to do with what James had to say to me? What, if, what has he taught me? Well, there's a phrase that I grew up and learned, and you probably did too. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is not true. Because we have all been wounded, and we have all wounded others with our words. Words are powerful. Words can wound. Words can destroy. And so James says, be quick to listen. Be slow to to speak and realize the power that your words have is all out of proportion to their size. I love, there's a, there's a passage over in the book of Psalms, 1914, that make a good prayer to kind of end things. David says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Pray with me. God, we come to you and we read these words and we've heard what you've had to say and we feel guilty and good and all the mixture of stuff that uh, uh, admits that we are a stumbling kind of people. I pray that we've heard what you've had to say, that you will teach us through what you have to say. And I hope we, I hope we talk differently. All those Millions of words that we will speak, may they be words that reflect our love and relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.